Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you this week. Uh, this is episode 220. and We are recording it on September 30th. That's a Friday. Joining me today is my friend and colleague, Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Hey, listeners. Glad to be back. I know. We've taken a few weeks off. Uh, listeners, I think like all of you, gosh, life is just hectic and busy. It's Bailey, I know. Sprint, especially for this election season. Yeah. I, you know, I say this every year, I think, right? I forget how busy election season is. And then I'll forget in the spring how busy the legislative session is as well, right? It'll be April or May, and we'll both be pulling our hair out, um, trying to cram all the news in and our work and some sort of, you know, self care. Is that still a thing? But to your defense, we have a special session that just concluded, right? And we have competitive statewide elections for change. And that, you know, makes things busier than a typical season. So um, those are all good things, but they all lead to um, more work to do. That's right. Yeah. Well, and listeners, I'm, I hope that you're, well, I don't hope your life is busy, but I hope that you have some grace for us for not putting out our weekly podcast on a weekly basis. Lately, it's been every other, and I think we even skipped the last two weeks. Uh, anyway, it's good to be back. Good to be back. Scott. I mean, we're just wrapping up Hunger Action Month for uh, my work. And so oh, yeah. the month of September has been a sprint for yeah. um, food security advocates. So Glad to, to be back on the the grind of the pod. Well, and it was a big thing because that was a big focus even at the White House, right? There was a big hunger push or anti-hunger push. Yes, we the had House. the first White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health in more than 53 years. So the last one was in 1969 with President Nixon. Um, and you had um, important programs that came out of the fruition of that conference, like the Women, Infant, and Children's Program, known as WIC. Um, And so uh, the White House had that entire day set for bringing together uh, food security advocates across the country together, um, and even setting the audacious goal of wanting to end hunger by 2030 in this country. They also released a, a national strategy um, uh, federal actions that they want taken to address hunger. Um, they called for different partners to uh, come together across the state to work in public-private partnership in tackling the issue of hunger. So one of the cool things is Secretary Justin Brown attended that conference. Uh, Chris Bernard from Hunger Free Oklahoma was invited. Um, and we had uh, someone from our network that we nominated who has lived experience with hunger able to go from Oklahoma to that conference in person. So um, it was interesting and also great to have um, the attention focused on not only just the issue of hunger, but also how do we get nutritious foods to families? How do we um, improve physical activity to reduce, um, you know, diet related diseases and and all those other things. So it was a good time to, to focus on it. But now the real work begins now that the initiatives have been set. Yeah, that's really interesting and exciting. Um, and also mind-blowing that we hadn't had like a national strategy and hadn't even had a conference, a national conference on hunger since the Nixon administration. Yes. That's bananas. 
Indeed. I don't, it's not the same, but when I was working in the HIV AIDS community under President Obama, um, right towards the end of his second term, no, I think about it, it was in the first term, but he formed a president's council for HIV and they came out with a national HIV and AIDS strategy, which we had not had in the 30 plus years of that epidemic either. And at first, I think there was a natural inclination to be skeptical about like, uh, what is this top down? It was kind of, you know, it's going to be not fluffy, but like a little loquacious, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into a big report like that. But in practicality, as it rolled out, it forced all the organizations to kind of align on similar or the same goals. And it really did make our work, I think, more streamlined and more effective. And one thing that I really liked is that they had a big shift at the federal level away from squishy feel-good goals to actual like measurable metrics. So you had to, and it was like, you have to, you know, how many people's, um, are you getting their viral load decreased? Are you decreasing new infections? Are you getting people into care? It was like very concrete numbers. And if you couldn't justify with numbers, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Kind of, you know, you can't just be like, well, we educated people, which is good, but like how many, what did you tell them? Like, let's, let's put that work into measurable uh, metrics. And so I hope that's the same, it's the same for you all in the, uh, in the hunger community. Absolutely. And one thing that I tell people often to, to the point you're raising, Andy, is that there's multi-pronged um, focuses that need to happen because when it comes to the issue of um, addressing hunger, it oftentimes doesn't involve food itself. It's about you know, yeah. access. It's about uh, getting to those root causes of what's causing food insecurity. And one of the pieces that was lifted by the president was codifying um, the child tax credit that was implemented during the pandemic. Um, and there was a standing ovation when that conversation was taking place, right? And so we know that that's one um, important solution to continue on because we saw um, poverty drop when that child tax credit was expanded and more money was in the hands of families to be able to purchase nutritious foods and get the things that they need to survive, right? And so it takes a lot of things in addition to, you know, high quality food itself, but addressing, you know, those underlining things that, that lead to people um, needing uh, food security to, to, to be able to, to reach it. So yeah. that was really exciting to have those larger conversations. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk about some of the stuff that's been going on over the last few weeks that we haven't had time to address. Um, and maybe I'm going to start with polling because I know it's on the minds of everybody and you mentioned it earlier. Um, but we've had uh, three or four polls come out now, statewide polls from likely voters. Scott and I discussed this a couple of weeks ago um, about the shift from registered voters to likely voters and what that might reflect in polling. And what we've seen, right, is that these polls are pretty close for a couple of races, for the governor's race uh, and then for the state superintendent's race. Other and races, Andy, that's a huge deal because a year ago, we would not have imagined these races being that close. Right. right? We probably would have laughed to hear that there were competitive races um, at 
the state level general election, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I will say, you know, some of us, mainly you and I are included in this. We have these conversations a lot that Oklahoma, because of gerrymandering and because of how just we all, where we choose to live as voters, uh, as people at the state legislative level, it's not particularly competitive, right? You tend to live around people who are like you. So as, and then gerrymandering. And it's structurally this. difficult, right? right? right. So, ticket voting and all those things we've talked yeah, about in the past. Right. Blue districts get bluer, red districts get redder. We get more segmented that way, but statewide for all of these statewide elected offices, including the U S Senate seats, you get a, a different cross section. And so we're starting to see some of that competitiveness that is possible in statewide elections. And, um, I, so I think that's interesting. Uh, one thing that is probably good to note, um, and I'm, this is not necessarily even my thoughts, but earlier this week, uh, a political scientist, David Wasserman from, um, the Cook Political Report did a guest lecture at OU that was free and open to the public. Yeah. yeah, at the Carl Apple Center. So of course I drove down there. I got there like 30 minutes early and was just sitting outside, um, too nervous to go introduce myself. Um, but it was really good. If you don't follow uh, Wasserman, he is at Redistrict on Twitter. And is honestly one of the leading analysts, political scientists in the country um, with his, his work with Cook. And so he discussed the competitiveness of these two races in Oklahoma, but he pointed out, which I think is just to, not to temper excitement, but to manage expectations, that while both of those races are polling within the margin of error, the the deciding factor then is going to be somewhat independence and basically like those undecided voters. And in Oklahoma, when you look statewide, undecided voters tend to break conservative, right? They kind of might be holding out. And then when they get to the ballot box, that's usually where it goes, which is why Wasserman pointed out that four years ago, we saw Drew Edmondson polling pretty close to Kevin Stitt and then lost by what was, I think, a surprising margin to a lot of people. The difference, though, is that in 2018, the state had not had four years of Governor Stitt in office, right? He was new. He was fresh. It was an open seat. And there is, I think, also this, you know, we often talk about the populist bend of Oklahoma and that I think, you know, voters have a, a default position of vote those bums out, which is not how it works. But I think that sentiment's always often there where it's like, you know what, we're tired of this person. Like, okay, move along. And we'll see what happens come November. There's still a whole month left. Lots of things can happen in the month of October. Lots of things do happen in the month of October. And uh, and so we'll we'll see how it goes. But I do think, and, and Wasserman admitted, right, this is um, closer than it was expected to be at this point. Yes. And I think that is giving certainly Democratic voters a little bit of excitement and probably putting Republican voters on a bit of alert. And that alone, like, ratchets up the pressure for things. So Andy, I would also add that there is factions that are forming within the Republican Party, especially over the past two years, from defining the identity post-Trump, right? So you have your um what people refer to as your Reagan Republicans. Now you have your Trump Republicans, you have your libertarians, right? And so with 
um, the factions. I'm I'm sure that's also um, an advantage point for, and I would argue not just two races that are competitive, but I think there's three races that are building momentum for people to show up. I would suspect that this election would have higher voter turnout than maybe in past um, general elections or like at least, you know, over the past couple of years because you have um, a very visible U.S. Senate race with uh, Kendra Horn versus Mark Wayne Mullen. You have that visible state superintendent race with um, Gina Nelson and Ryan Walters. And you have that gubernatorial race with Joy Hoffmeister and Kevin Stitt. And so in addition to uh, what you mentioned of um, the four years of the current uh, gubernatorial administration, which includes um, the state uh, super, I'm sorry, not the state superintendent, uh, the um, secretary of education with that, plus the factions that are happening with and frustrations within the Republican Party um, and um, the amount of resources that are being brought in at this time for campaigning all contribute to um, elevating turnout, right? Because uh, uh, one candidate was sharing on social media that, you know, there's 4 million Oklahomans, about 3 million are eligible to vote, about 2 million are registered, and about 1 million actually turn out. So this will be an election that's determined by who shows up to the polls. And if it is enough people who have frustrations with um the status quo at this time, then there could be shifts that we haven't seen in recent years in statewide office, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's um, a really good point. And you know, Bailey, you and I were texting earlier this week about some of those factions and how it's starting to already creep into the conversation inside the legislature. So, I think you know, listeners know that um, State Senator Greg Treat has been the pro tem, the leader of the Senate for the last uh, four years, eight years, maybe not that quite that long, four, mm -hmm. four years. And uh, he is in his last term now. So he's only got two years left. He terms out in 24, I believe. And uh, so this week, Senator Rob Standridge announced that he was intending to challenge treat for the position. Which wasn't intended to be a public email, but yeah. It got out. <laughs> and uh, and so Stanridge, I guess, is to the right of Treat as far as the Senate goes. Um, often a pretty uh, uh, outspoken senator for, for conservative values. He's from Norman, which is also interesting. They're both from the Oklahoma City, larger, greater metro area. Um, I expect we'll probably see some other people that put throw their name out there. But given the, I think the, not an ironclad rule that Treat has had, but it sounds like there is some um, division in the ranks. Not enough that want to support Stanridge, but also not an overwhelming majority that want to support Treat. And so it may be really interesting, depending on how the election goes for the Senate, uh, particularly for the Republican caucus in the Senate, and then, um, you know, kind of the jockeying for power that happens over the next few months and into the beginning of, of session next year. Having a different pro tem would be an enormous change um, to kind of the 
the tone and tenor, I think, of the legislature, because yes. we've had we've had Treat in the Senate and McCall in the House for the last four or five years, four years, I guess. And that's kind of lent some stability. We know they're both going to turn out in a couple of years, so change is imminent, but this might be earlier than I think some people expected. Well, and Annie, I'd say not only just stability from years of leadership, but also balance of temperament between, you know, the three legs of that stool. Um, the best example would be with the governor's push for tax cuts at this time, right? Um, he's used the president's student loan forgiveness efforts and, and other things as an opportunity to um, bring up tax cuts in the state, right? Um, and you've had responses from um, the current president pro tem treat saying the legislature is not interested in taking that up right now, right? Uh, he even mentioned in, in one of the statements about, you know, having lived through uh, five years ago when yeah. uh, we had to figure out how to balance a budget, we have to think thoughtfully, right, about um, making the, the right decisions for the state. And so um, if that leadership changes, that could lead to instability on that front, right? Um, Senator Stanridge is known as an ultra-conservative lawmaker, right, who wants to see a lot of the idealistic changes that typically come from um, far-right conservative leaders. And so the instability could shift from two fronts, right, from not only having new leadership abruptly, but also um, leadership that would really push those bolder, ultra-conservative ideas um, further into um, the political discourse. Yeah, I, um, I, you know, I have my own feelings. I'm, I think I'm really just interested in to see who else might put their hat in the ring because I kind of enjoy a little bit of that horse race, especially within parties. You know, I get a little irritated about the two-party system, but when it comes to how parties manage their members, especially in the legislature, um, because of the power dynamics in Oklahoma, I part, for me personally, that part is interesting. Um, but I think we'll certainly see. Well, it, I think the expectation was two years from now, there yeah, being a right. race with uh, a few people for the, the pro tem seat. I don't necessarily think that it was expected for competitive races for prior to, you know, the, the two years of, of the pro tem terming out. I, I would suspect that, you know, even if the vote was close, I think it would still go in the way of the current pro tem because yeah. of the years of service, even just like typical elections, right? It is harder to unseat an incumbent. I think it's the same way in leadership. You have to do something really drastic um, or violate some type of ethics yeah. <laughs> in order to be booted out, right? Um, and so I don't suspect that he'll lose the seat, but it'll be interesting to see what that election looks like. Yeah. You know, a few years ago, there was a, kind of a rumors of a you know, an insurgency against Speaker McCall over in the House because people felt like he was not not an effective leader over there. Um, and I think he played his cards right. I mean, obviously, he's still Speaker, and I don't, I haven't heard any rumors about people trying to uh, unseat him over there. 
Um, but I guess we'll find out as again as we get closer. And I'm glad, Bailey, you mentioned about that grocery tax thing because it's been a funny conversation this week, right? Where the governor's like, we should get rid of the, the grocery tax. Like, I'm still pushing for that. I still want you guys to do it, even though the legislature has said repeatedly, like, that's not happening, specifically the Senate, right? The House kind of gets to sit back and be like, well, you know, the Senate doesn't want to do it, so we're not going to try. Because And so they get off the hook. And so you get this treat versus stit battle there, which is interesting when you start to consider what treats future ambitions might be. Um, but I, they're like both right. I mean, the most people, I think, or I know from polling, most Oklahomans would like to see the grocery tax eliminated. The Democrats proposed it last session as well and supported it. The problem, of course, is that our tax structure in Oklahoma is not like other states. As we've said on the show many times, cities are funded by sales tax, counties are funded by property tax, and the state is funded by income tax. And they design that as like and a some way. Sales tax. Yeah, and some sales tax. And by removing the grocery sales tax, it would be good for people's pocketbooks, but it would be bad for every city in the state because they would lose that revenue. Well, and, and Andy, just to put a little bit additional nuance to it, the governor is calling for the removal of the state portion of right. the grocery sales tax. So half of our gro- half of our sales tax goes to the state. So 4% goes to the state. The other portion could be 4%, could be 6%, because that depends on uh, what the sales tax is in your community goes to your local government, right? To fund those local services like your trash pickup and your water, um, your animal control, right? Um, And so it's important that voters realize too, well, I guess listeners to our podcast, uh, note that like- Yeah, I would assume they're all voters. Hopefully you're voters if if you're a listener of this podcast. Um, But- if the state removes just that 4%, that's just the portion. That's hundreds of millions of dollars that'll be taken away from state coffers. It wouldn't take away that local portion because local governments are like, if you touch that, we don't have any other sources because of the way our tax structure is uh, designed. And so the reality is this could pass tomorrow and people would go to the grocery store the next day and still see a sales tax on their groceries right? because that local portion is going to be there, right? Yep. And so to me, that's also the risk of pushing this policy, right? Number one, not having um, a replacement mechanism for those funds because we've already cut taxes over time, like the income tax and other things um, for how we fund our state services. Um, But secondly, the optics of people saying, raw, we've got rid of the grocery tax. And then they go buy their groceries at the store and see four to 6% sales tax still there. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's true. It's like a, it's a financial problem and a messaging problem for Republicans. Right. Uh, In a difficult spot. Yeah, I would love to see some comprehensive tax reform in this state, but that's also like one of those huge 
um, stakeholder multi-point thing that almost feels too big to do, right? It's like a president trying to take on healthcare, right? And as to quote President Trump, who knew healthcare were so big and difficult, right? Like it's a, uh, I think taxes are much the same way. Well, and, and on that note, um, the legislature last session, um, particularly the House, had a menu of bills related to this area that could provide relief on grocery tax. So one of the options that they did propose was um, bumping up the sales tax relief credit, right? So if that was bumped up right now, I think the cap is about $40 um, per household. Um, but if they were to bump that up to $120, right, that would ensure that families, um, especially those who are needed, because that's also um, a targeted um, tax credit, would receive um, that amount back in their pocket that they may have spent on um, sales tax on their groceries, right? Um, the problem is, too, you get rid of that sales tax on groceries, it benefits everybody, right? So it doesn't matter whether you make a million dollars or you make a few dollars, everyone will be exempt from that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be like that broad-based cut. Um, but also one, one other piece that people typically talk about when they talk about the grocery taxes, you know, helping, you know, provide that relief. But for example, SNAP recipients don't pay sales tax on their groceries already, mm, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's something also to consider that there are options out there beyond just the broad cut without tax reform that can be done to provide relief, targeted relief to those who need it at this time that the legislature could take up. Right. You know, one thing that they could do, Bailey, is they could have allowed state question 820 to be on the ballot this year, um, which would have, uh, if enacted by the voters, would have legalized recreational marijuana and brought in some tax revenue, right? Because the recreational weed would sell at a with a higher tax rate than the medical weed. Um, and it would bring in, I forget the number, but I think hundreds of millions of dollars in expected revenue as um, both from Oklahomans and, you know, you know, we'd love to talk about tourists coming in from other states. So you could have some folks driving up from Texas or whatever and buying some Oklahoma weed, I guess. Uh, and But that measure is not going to be on the ballot. You know, we had Michelle Tilly from the Yes on 820 campaign on here a few weeks ago talking about it, waiting to find out what the Supreme Court was going to say. And they said no in the end. Well, they said no. At this time, for this election. At this time, right. And they also said the reason for the delay was this new uh, signature verification process. It was like, there was it was unnecessary. There's no reason it should have taken this long. But it did. So we're not going to put you on the ballot now. But that does mean that at some point between now and 2024, this measure will go on the ballot. Um, I think most listeners probably have read it by now, but just to hit it in case you missed it. Um, the way that it works is once you qualify for the ballot, the law says you are automatically on, shall be placed on the next statewide election ballot. And so the, the next one kind of, and I, there's been some court decisions or rulings in the past that interprets that to mean the next general election ballot. Uh, and so 
by default now, since it's not this year, it's on the 2024 presidential ballot. However, the governor can also put it on an earlier ballot. So the June primary in 24, even the presidential primary in 24, um, in theory, um, or he could call a special election for it just on its own, or he could throw it on a ballot in like a February with like city council elections or something weird like that. So I suspect well, normally those are all political decision, right? Uh, yeah. What yeah. makes most advantage of where to, to place that because that ballot measure will likely draw out a lot of voters who would be single issue voters, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure that that's one piece that Republicans are probably happy about that it was not placed on this ballot because it could have um, increased turnout for those who want to see recreational marijuana on the ballot, right? Right. I think there's like a, a you know, a, a armchair quarterback belief that marijuana is more popular with Democrats than Republicans. And maybe it is, I don't know. But if you drive around Oklahoma, it is pretty clear that Oklahomans, regardless of their partisanship, like their wacky tobacco, right? I was driving um, down Penn the other day through like Nichols Hills coming down May. Like there are, there are weed shops everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are dispensaries everywhere in every small town. You go to the panhandle, you go to Southeast Oklahoma, wherever it is, there is marijuana being sold and thus purchased and consumed. And now that we have it, I mean, 10, 10% of the population has a medical card already. It is broadly supported by most Oklahomans. And I think, you know, the turnout might be more even than the uh, people kind of would guess. Sure. Who knows? I guess we'll find out in a couple of years. Uh, you know, on a related note, Bailey, I um, just saw this today there was a, a an article i guess walmart is making a, a push um, for a law change to be able to sell liquor in stores there i think it was the oklahoma had an article about this no tulsa world uh, and quoted um republican pollster and lobbyist pat mcferrin i guess he represents or works for walmart uh, and was talking about that this makes me think of a couple of things from two or three years ago. There was a big push by Walmart to get optometrists, yes. right? Yes. And it was a there was a ballot initiative that they paid for and ran mm -hmm. and lost. And then the very next year, they got the legislature to pass it anyway, right? So it was one of those things where I was like, well, the people voted this down. And then the next year it went through and no one said boo about it. Yeah, the concern on that front was... With the quality change of services provided and would it hurt local optometrists for people mm -hmm. just to be able to go to their local Walmart, right? And I'm sure that's part of the argument for this of allowing hard liquor sales in Walmart. Would it hurt your mom and pop liquor stores or um, your local providers of, of alcohol? Right, because they're going to be able to buy it in bulk and sell it for cheaper. But, I mean, and I don't know. I mean, it's. I guess they can open up, you know, like in Texas, you've got stores like um, Total Wine, which is an outstanding liquor store, in my opinion. They, they have, have samples. 
Yeah. Into wine. Like, it's crazy. wild. The little <laughs> cooler by the register where you can cool your wine down. It's, it, I was like, this is a whole other level. Um, cause back then, well, last time I went, it was like before our laws changed and you had to go to like the dicey joint next to Seven Eleven. But if, if I think, right, if Walmart starts selling liquor, it's going to be kind of how they sell beer, right? They're going to have 80% of it's going to be mass market Jack Daniels and Bacardi and like those big brands. You're not going to get your specialties. Yeah. Your specialties, the small batch craft stuff. You're not going to be getting some of the mezcal, like, you know, we can go down a rabbit hole here and just like you don't, you can get some craft beer in Walmart, but for most others, I go to, you know, my store of choice over here. And I think that's probably how it would shake out, but still those big brands do represent a big loss of revenue for, small suppliers who have been hamstrung, I think, by our laws for decades already. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see this David versus Goliath battle play out next year if it gets to that, right? Absolutely. And the winners will be the lobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Bailey, what else has happened the last couple of weeks? The State Board of Education recommended a teacher pay raise. Yes. So uh, the State Board of Ed recommended a $5,000 raise for educators. Um, yeah. So I think that's been a, a hot topic over the past few years, um, especially on the conversation of keeping Oklahoma's competitiveness, because uh, we are seeing the growing impact of the teacher shortage, right? Mm -hmm. um, and arguably people say there's not a teacher shortage. It's, it's you know, teachers um, are facing a lot of challenges right now from um, the attacks on uh, oh. what they're teaching and what they're able to teach um, and limitations around that through the wokeness conversations to um, just the environments of coming out of COVID. We're seeing many people leave the profession continuously. And so they're working from the financial incentive end to ensure that teachers are at least um, making competitive wages. And so it's something that um, all sides of the aisles <laughs> want to see done and have used that as a, as a talking point. So it is good to see that the uh, State Board of Education has approved that to, to move forward for educators. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to me, I think, from a like a purely political messaging standpoint, like this was proposed by Superintendent Hoffmeister, right, who's running for governor. She put it out there and the board said yes. I kind of thought they might say no for political reasons, right? They said yes. And so it became like a non-issue, right? Like I think if they had said no, she would have been like, you know, Joy proposes this raise and, the, you know, the stit appointees say no. But they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Now, of course, it just kicks the can over to the legislature who has to actually make the decision to fund it next year. Absolutely. And that may or may not happen. But on its merits, it seems like uh, the right reasonable thing to do, right? Like if you want to retain teachers, you got to pay them a appropriate salary. And we keep lagging. We're always playing catch up. It would be great, right? And right. Andy, I want to connect the dots on even the prior conversation about um, cutting the grocery sales tax because if we don't have an adequate tax base because we're permanently removing revenue sources then we can't do things like elevate teacher pay by five thousand 
right? <laughs> we can't pay for those things that um, are still needed in our state. Um, and so we have to be cognizant and mindful of um, the trade-offs of what we ask for and also the necessities for um, a diversified tax base and adequate um, uh, tax reform, right? To ensure that we can continuously pay for these things. Uh, we have an exceptional rainy day fund, right? We are good for something happens in the future. We can cover it, right? But that's a temporary thing. <laughs> that is not there for uh, covering every single bump in the road, especially as they say, you know, we haven't hit the worst of inflation, right? They said that this is going to continue on and may get worse in the future. So that money is going to be necessary to make sure that Oklahoma, you know, can pay its bills. But yeah. to do the things that we need, like raising salaries, that would be a permanent bill for Oklahoma, we got to have the adequate revenue sources. So that's something we have to think about when we call for, for, for tax cuts. Right. So. Yeah. It's um, really got to picture everything together because everything does fit together in some way. And if you look at the okay policy has a graph where it shows the balance of the rainy day fund over the last 15 or 20 years. And it's just like a jerky up, down, up, down, up, down, where anytime it gets a little bit high, it's not, because we spend it, it like on some project, it's because there's a recession there. They make some bad policy. They give tax cuts and then they have to dip into savings to cover expenses because they shouldn't have made the tax cuts. And so we haven't figured out how to get the revenue stabilization fund to be stable, right? Like it's in the name we should. And now we have three, we have like three different stabilization funds. I hope that this combination we have now might yield that because as we're seeing, right? Like we had to dip into it a couple of years ago, then it was some years of plenty. It looks like the next, you know, six, 12 months might be one of those times when revenues decrease if, if consumer spending retracts. Um, and that means less sales tax. If wage uh, the stagnation continues, like less income tax to meet the need, we gotta kind of think forward. We gotta think ahead you know, 10 or 20 years about where we want our state to be and work towards that instead of always being reactive to whatever crisis is, is happening. Absolutely. Um, well, and the legislature has been active lately, right? So yes. one other thing that we've seen lately, uh, I mentioned this in the very beginning um, of why we've been so busy lately, you know, tracking things. Uh, the legislature has been in special session um, since May, um, to focus on allocating the American Rescue Plan Act funds that we've received. Um, we were behind the nation in allocating our funding, um, but the legislature was making an effort to be deliberate and intentional about how we spent those funds, hearing different proposals around the state of where should those $1.87 billion go. And they had about $18 billion of proposals <laughs> to consider. Yeah. Um, but the working committees have met over the past few months. They've made decisions and they've allocated about $1.71 of that $1.87 billion. Um, they've gone to a variety of things. So they've gone to broadband and 
infrastructure efforts. They've gone to um, provide health coverage to build, not health coverage, I'm sorry, to build um, health infrastructures uh, to increase uh, capacity of uh, different health providers, right? To be able to get more services of people to expand um, mental health capacity. There's money given to um, help infants and children um, uh, and to get to child care services. So there's just a range of services and things that were funded that the legislature met to vote upon. Um, and one of those items became a very controversial topic, um, particularly related to, to OU Health. Yeah, this is just mind-blowing to me. And, you know, Scott joked to Bailey and I today that he couldn't make the podcast today for some other reasons, but he said, and honestly, given how the legislature acted this week, I would just be screaming the whole time. And that's, it's, it is infuriating and <clears throat> just deeply disappointing um, that the legislature essentially used this federal money as a carrot to I don't know. I don't know if a bribe is too strong of a word or blackmail, right? But essentially say OU Health, hey, if you want this huge chunk of money, you can have it, but you gotta you can't use it for healthcare for trans trans kids, right? Like you just can't do it. And it's some of the And it's about thirty nine million dollars that the joint committee um, on pandemic relief funding approved for OU Health to expand. Mental health services for kids, right? Absolutely. And, and there's a program called um, Roy G. Biv that yeah. provides health services to um, gender affirming health services to trans children. And yeah. the legislature said, OU Health, you can have this $39 million, but you cannot use those dollars for those services. Um, and so there was a large debate in the legislature this week on whether or not that should happen. And it approved through the House and the Senate and uh, on the governor's desk. And I'm, I'm sure he will, if he hasn't already signed it, will sign it. So. Yeah. I so I used to, when I worked at OU in the HIV clinic, we worked closely with the Adolescent Medicine Clinic where the Roy G. Biv program is based. Um, when the, the the researcher or the physician who runs that program came to the OU, it was a huge deal. The, the old chief of adolescent medicine had retired. We had lost a lot of that institutional knowledge and passion for that community. And when the new faculty arrived, it was a huge deal. And it has been an extremely important and healthy thing for individuals, for our community here in Oklahoma City, and for our state. Um, and it elevates OU in a way that makes them competitive with other medical schools across the country. And for the legislature, who has routinely cut funding to the universities in our state over and over and over the last decade, uh, or decade plus, for them to once again come back and be like, you can have this, but you can't use it for that. That puts OU in a position where they have to say either no, like 
you can't bully us this way. But also like, that's not what they ask for the money to be for. It'd be like, if I said to you, Bailey, I'm going to, I'll give you $50, but you can't use it to buy wine. And you're like, I, I know I asked for this to get the oil changed or something. Like it was like a whole different thing. And then you're like, well, why, why are you bringing up the, you know, like what's this about? Um, and I, it's when that's the headline then, right? The headline is exactly what happened. The legislature is trying to use this money as a way to bully a, a, the university into doing what they want them to do. And, and I it's think, conflicting messaging too, right? On the parental rights and parental choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We heard a lot about that um, during the debates on school choice and giving parents more autonomy of making decisions on behalf of their children. And even the conversations about what's being taught in schools, right? Yeah. And yeah. the quote unquote wokeness, right? right. Um, in House Bill 1775. Right. Uh, of all of that being rooted into parent choice. But in this area, it's limiting options for parents, children, and their physicians to make decisions right together. So right. Uh, it, is, it is interesting for that conflict. A lot of people who just want to go to the legislature and be like, what the hell do you care about what me and my kids do? Right? Like, you want to come into the room with the endocrinologist and discuss what type of diabetes treatment that we decide for our child? Like, it's just, you know, like the gall of that seems... What's rooted in... in misunderstandings and assumptions about what's happening with that type of care. Yes. Um, there were conservative leaders who referenced it as like castration of children yeah. or taking out like the womb and uterus of children. Um, and so some of these um, ideas are clouding the life-saving services, right? Um, and we've even heard that when in other states where policies like this are put in place, um, you see higher calls for mental health services of, of youth, right? Because we know that trans youth have higher suicide rates and other um, health conditions in that way, higher rates than um, other children, right? right, right. And so this has um, human consequences to limit options for, for care for kids in Oklahoma. Yeah. And yeah, like what you said, it, it also just defies the data, right? Like um, there are not, it is not happening at the rate. It's not the, I don't know, the way they talk about it, they're like, oh, they're just, you know, changing people's genders and having surgery all the time. And that is explicitly not what's happening. Um, gender affirming care is affirming that person's gender. It means it meets them where they're at. And let me tell you, as someone who has a number of trans friends and has worked in the trans community for the better part of a decade, like their life is hard enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like they're out there looking for ways to make it more difficult. So, um, well, Andy, can we end on at least a positive thing that has please, happened? Please, I'm going to end up like Scott. I'm going to be the one screaming through the episode. Well, one good thing that has happened on the healthcare front is that um, the governor's task force has recommended um, expanding uh, care for pregnant women who are on Medicaid. 
Yeah. Um, and so that is um, a really big deal. And I think that is in result to uh, the abortion decision, because we know that with the codifying of the extreme abortion policies, um, that will lead to um, women having fewer options, right, within their pregnancy. And so it's going to be, it's past imperative, it should be done a long time ago, um, but we've, we've always needed to enhance care, especially for um, women who are on Medicaid, right, um, to have those services that they need, to have um, safe and healthy um, childbirth, right? And so I think that's a great thing that the governor's task force is um, expanding services for, for pregnant women on Medicaid. Yeah. No, it's something that should have happened, I mean, years ago. The way that the law previously read was that, and I forget, but if a woman was on Medicaid, be, so once you're pregnant, if you're low income, uninsured, you were eligible then because you were pregnant because there were two lives involved, you and the baby. But for the mother, coverage ended like pretty much at birth. I think it might have been six weeks. I forget the exact line, but really quickly. And so in my experience, we had a lot of women who would have a baby and then could not um, come in for her um, postpartum. postpartum care because mm -hmm. she'd lost her insurance. Right. And like, again, it's hard enough. She's at home with a newborn, right? And, and that's so, one of the most critical times yes. that women need yes. that support as they transition from um, giving birth. Yeah. So the, to me, the important part of, of this change is it does two things. It raises the income threshold to still like a pretty low level, but it bumps it up to 205% of the poverty level, which is like roughly mm, like $24,000, $25,000 a year. So it's still pretty low, but it also extends their postpartum eligibility for a year right after the, after birth, which is huge. That's a, gets just kind of over the hump. It should be longer, but it's a good change. And, 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 and it's going to save lives. It will save lives. I'm happy for that. I'm happy for that. All right, Bailey. Well, I think, um, you know, we could keep going, but we're out of time and listeners, thanks for, uh, bearing with us. Thanks for, uh, navigating that with me. I almost got, almost lost my cool there for a minute. So I was, I was gesticulating wildly here on the screen. Only Bailey could see it, but listeners, you can imagine just picture like a bird flying into a, a, a windshield. <laughs> uh, go ahead. No, definitely encourage, especially those who feel rage about the limitations of healthcare in the state um, to get with organizations that have been um, taking the lead on um, these efforts, like Freedom Oklahoma has been um, engaging and organizing um, on these issues. And so I encourage those who want to learn more, um, or like the Trevor Project, for instance, um, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. for providing supports across the nation. So um, connect with organizations because they need you now, right, on the efforts to protect health care for um, all Oklahomans. And when we say all Oklahomans, we're meaning all. That's right. And just reach out to people that you know that are having a, a harder time than you, right? Send them a note, give them a text, a phone call, tell them that they have value, that you appreciate them for who they are. 
if there's someone who's doing this work, like I, I sent Nicole at Freedom Oklahoma an email this morning. First thing I was thinking about her and I was like, you're doing a great job. Like I couldn't be there yesterday with you, but thank you for being there. ACLU of Oklahoma is another yeah. entity, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I heard someone said that choosing to work in politics is choosing to have your heart broken. It feels like that happens a lot more often around here than it does in some places. That's probably not the case, but it still hurts a lot. And uh, there are good people doing good work. And I believe that in the long run, like the long, what's the, what's, what's uh, Dr. King's quote about the, the arc. moral arc of justice. Yeah. Bends in our direction. So um, we'll get there. Well, Bailey, thanks for being here today. Of course. Thank you, Andy. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. We have a whole bunch of volunteer opportunities coming up. If you happen to listen to this before Saturday evening and you're going to the Plaza District Festival, we need volunteers for our booth. We'll be set up out front of Neon Coffee and have volunteers going into the crowd to do voter registration and education and just talking about voting and how important it is. We would love to have you come help with that. Um, also, you go to our website. Uh, you can go to letsfixthis.org. So volunteer. We'll get you connected to other opportunities, other days of action, knocking doors, phone banking, text banking. We've got lots of stuff happening over the next month. And well. you can get paid to knock some doors, right? That's right. We had, uh, had a little bit of extra money and um, was like, well, I'd rather put this into the hands of people who can do some good with it. So... If you uh, signed up, 50 bucks, right? That doesn't happen all the time. We This was a unique situation. But if you want to help sponsor that kind of thing, hit me up for that. We can, I would love to, you know, hire some college kids to go knock some doors because knocking doors increases turnout, well, like around 8%, which is a big deal. So, all right. Uh, on that note, we'll end with our favorite phrase. Decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week. Yeah.